Good morning, Grace. If you're new with us today, uh, we are in a, a series titled Wise Up. And in this series, we've been looking at two particular topics uh, in dealing with relationships, the area of sex and money in regards to how they affect relationships. And we've been uh, working through some of the wisdom books in the Bible that really are books that God gave us to give us practical wisdom for how we live uh, on this earth that we're in here. And so we're in, in those books dealing with these topics. The first half of it, we've been dealing with the sexual side of a relationship, and we've been focusing primarily in a book called The Song of Solomon, uh, a very rarely taught book, but a whole book, eight chapters in the Bible that's dedicated to teaching us about the sexual and romantic side of a relationship. So it's very important and, and, and necessary. And in this, in this book, let me just give you a big picture and then we'll talk about where we're gonna be landing today. The book is a song that's written, or a poem, uh, you could say, that tells the story of this couple, King Solomon and his wife Shulamite, uh, in here, and, and how they met, they courted. Uh, it talks about their wedding night and their first sexual encounter and how they preserved themselves for that and, and what that was like and the principles for it. Uh, today we're going to see how they face com- conflict in their marriage. Then we're going to see uh, how they deepened their marriage as they went into uh, the later years, you could say, or, or as they got into their marriage more. And then lastly, we'll see how they, uh, kept, well, see how they kept their love fresh and then how they deepened their relationship later on in their marriage. So this whole book gives you that picture within a song, but it's a poem and a song, so it's not necessarily chronological Uh, in there, but it's based on the truths and the events that happened in their relationship. So today we're going to look at uh, a section right in the middle. We're about halfway through it uh, as we jump in today. So let's pray, uh, and we'll read through this and talk about what today's passage is going to address with us as we deal with sexual tensions that arise in any uh, relationship that we have, in particular our marital relationships. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in, as I mentioned, the Song of Solomon. We're going to start in chapter 5 today. If you're new to the Bible or you're not sure where this book is because it's not used very often, open up to the book of Psalms. That's probably a familiar one to you. And if you start turning to the right, uh, you'll get to Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes and then the Song of Solomon. Those are all the wisdom books in that part of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the chair Bibles in front of you uh, and open it up. Uh, the hardcover book, and if you open it up to page 526, it'll take you uh, to the passage that we're going to be in today, 526. I'd encourage you to follow along in there, and we'll put some of the passages up on the screen as well. You can follow there also. Let's pray, uh, and we'll jump in and take a look at this passage today in the Song of Solomon. Father God, I just pause to give you thanks for the amazing sacrifice and gift of your son, that he, above all, is the perfect lover who loved unconditionally, loved sacrificially, and loved even in the midst of our rejection of him. And even when we rejected, he laid down his life uh, so that when we came to our senses, when you opened our eyes and revealed to us the beauty of that sacrifice and that gospel truth, that we might trust in him and and begin a new relationship with you. So Lord, as we celebrate that today, I pray that you will speak to our hearts uh, in the area of our sexuality and our sexual relationships. Lord, an area that if we're honest, 
uh, most of us have kept you out of. And yet, Lord, you're the one who created it. You're the one who designed it for us. And you're the one who has given us the perfect guidelines in which we can enjoy this aspect of our life. So, Lord, help us to uh, see how much you love us by sharing these truths with us today. And I pray that we will be people um, that hear them and put them into practice so that we might experience the joy that you desire us to have in these areas of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All marriages face tensions in the area of sex. Each person uh, brings with them uh, different desires or different levels of desire in that area of sex, and each person brings with them a different history and past in regards to sexual relationships. However, it's important to understand that that sexual tension, as we're going to see this couple face today, is not the problem in our marriage. The problem in our marriage is how we choose to address sexual tension when it comes up. You see, every marriage is going to face them. Because every marriage has two different people with two different needs, two different histories, and two different experiences or teachings or mindsets about this issue. That's going to be true in every single relationship. So the problem, I hope you'll see today, is not that we have sexual tension in our relationships, in our marriage. The problem is, how do we choose to address those when they come up? And they will come up. So if you open your Bible today, as I mentioned, the Song of Solomon, here's the two things that I want you to see today that we're going to see in this passage. And the first is, what causes sexual tension? We're going to see this couple experience that for the first time. Up to this point, it's been the courtship, the dating, the marriage, the honeymoon. It's been, you know, all peaches and roses, and it's been all really nice. And now they're going to experience for the first time some real tensions in their relationship. Even in this perfect ideal picture that God's giving us in the scriptures, this stuff comes up. But you're also going to watch how they respond to it. They're going to see some poor responses and some positive ones. So what I want you to leave today with is, first of all, what causes sexual tensions in our marital relationships? And secondly, how should we choose to respond to them? Or how can we respond to them? We're going to see some negative ones and some positive. So Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 2 today as we go forward, so follow along with me. It says here, I slept, but my heart was awake. This is Shulamite. This is the wife here. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. And so it's a a phrase, again, remember, this is a poem. It's a song that's put together to not necessarily to depict the exact details, but to, to pick what was going on in their relationship. So some of the characters are revealing aspects of it, and some of it's just talking about, here it seems like she was either dreaming or she was just about to fall asleep, but she wasn't quite there yet. So she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. And a sound, my beloved is knocking. And now he's speaking, Solomon. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So if you know anything about Israel, you know that in Israel, uh, when nightfall comes, when it cools off, there's a very heavy dew that lands in the land in, in Israel. 
And so uh, a person of their time would have known what was going on here. Solomon had been working late. He'd been outside, probably had a long day, and that heavy dew was coming down, and here he is coming home. And in their time, it was very common, especially with a king and a queen, that the queen would have her own bedroom chambers. So they wouldn't necessarily sleep together. The king would have his own bedroom chambers all all the time. They wouldn't always be together. So if he was coming and knocking on her chambers, well, you guys can figure that out, right? So it's been a long day, it's a, a, a late, late at night, and he comes and he's knocking on her door and he's talking sweet to her. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And, and then verse 3, she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? That's in the Hebrew, if you study the Hebrew, it, it, it translated, I have a headache. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, that's, that's what it says there. Let me just pause here to... To, to, to reveal an obvious point here that's really important for us to, to know in marriages, and that's this, that every marriage relationship will experience sexual tension. Here's this ideal couple, even this picture, this song that God has given to us to understand it, and they're experiencing the exact same thing. As great as their courtship was, as beautiful as their marriage was, and the greatest start as they had, they're experiencing some tension, and they're going to. Sexual tensions are caused by different sexual needs. And anytime you bring two people into a relationship, you have two different sets of needs. There's nothing wrong with that. It's how you choose to address them. So I want to just walk through some questions. You, I didn't put these in your notes, but I'd encourage you maybe flip over your, your guide and on the back you can write these out. Here's five questions that would be healthy questions for you to talk through as a couple to address some of the common sexual tensions that arise and just begin a discussion around these. There's nothing specific about these. They're just some things that will help you address some common ones and things I've read. Uh, first one, or five questions to help you identify sexual tension. First one is, does stress increase or decrease your desire for sex? Have you ever thought about that? Because different people are wired differently. Some people, when they're in stressful situations, they've experienced a lot of stress, it heightens their desire for sex. Others, it diminishes it or eliminates it altogether. And when you come together in a marriage, it's probably not the same for both of you. Do you understand your differences? Are you even aware of that? Because if you're in a stressful situation, it's going to cause one person to feel one way and another person to feel another way, and now you have a perfect scenario for some sexual tension. All right? There's one that's a good thing to talk about. We'll come back to these in a little bit. How many times would you like to have sex in a week? I know you don't usually talk about this in church. I'm just telling you, if you don't talk about it and we don't talk about it, when are you going to talk about it? I just had a discussion with a guy who had been married for a lot of years, and he said, hey, I had this discussion this week. And it was important. We just needed to talk about it, and it was really helpful when it's done in a helpful way. Have you ever talked about how many times you would like to have sex in a week? Because there's usually in a marriage a high-desire partner and a low-desire partner. You know, I'm going to talk in general in the typical stereotypes, but know that And whenever I speak of these things, sometimes they're flipped around, okay? Oftentimes the guy is the high-desire and the woman's the lower-desire. You need to talk about what that looks like in your relationship and how you manage that in a healthy way. 
Uh, third one is on a scale of one to 10, how comfortable are you trying new things? Have you ever had a discussion about what kinds of things you're comfortable with in the bedroom with your spouse? Because there's gonna be one partner who may be more adventuresome and another one might be more conservative or uncomfortable with that. Now, I'm not talking about things that are way out of bounds. That's not what we're talking about here. But God gives you a lot of freedom, and we're going to see some of that even later on in the series. There's a lot of freedom you can have as a couple in your relationship and enjoying each other. But the boundaries are really to be determined by the two of you together. What another couple might be able to do may not be true for your marriage may not be true for you. It's something that you both have to be comfortable together with. And if you've never had that discussion, what often will happen is one person who wants to be more adventuresome is pushing one who's not comfortable with that, and you constantly have this tension back and forth that's doing nothing for your marriage in this particular area. Have the conversation. Get it out there, and then it allows you to back off or, or move forward a little bit in a way that builds your marriage in this way rather than it constantly being a hurtful area. Uh, fourthly, what are some things that help you get in the mood? Have you ever had that discussion with your spouse? What are some things that help you get in the mood? For example, guys, what helps us get in the mood is the moment we wake up and our eyes open up, we're in the mood. <laughs> and oftentimes it's about 40 minutes before our eyes even open up. I'm just, I'm just stating the facts, ladies, okay? You got to understand uh, I'm having some fun with but, but ladies, it's not always the same for them, guys. They're not thinking about it the moment that they wake up. And so when we come in, and we're going to see this happen here, when we come in thinking, oh, they, have, they desire me the same way I desire her, man, you, you got a rude awakening that it's not the same way. They want some romance they want to be connected with, they want to be talked with. Often one spouse is, it wants that interaction, and that's a healthy, good thing. You guys can figure out how do we do this in a way that brings us closer together rather than pulling us apart. And then lastly, uh, did that come up? Yeah. Are there any hurts in your past sexually that affect your response to me? We talked about this in another way. Up to this point, we've talked about the fact that virginity and purity is so important going into a relationship because it can help you uh, avoid some of these pains. But most of us have bought into a worldly view that the more sexual experiences we have, or if we have them before marriage, it's not a big deal. And now we're in a marriage, and we're wondering why we're having problems, and we've never gone back to talk about some of the painful experiences we had prior to this. And so what happens is your husband or your wife approaches you in a certain way or does something to you in a certain way sexually, and you respond to them based on you're hurt in the past, and all they know is that you're responding to me that way. What did I do to bring this on? They're totally unaware of that. Where having that conversation can help you love each other through those things and minister each other and understand each other rather than continue to respond to each other in a way that brings that hurt into your own relationship. Okay, so those are just some basic questions you can have uh, of what causes sexual tension and having a conversation to help bring them to the surface and then deal with them. So let's look at theirs, okay? Let's see what they had. So here she responds. So understand, he comes late at night after a long day's work. His hair is full of dew. It's been a long day. He hasn't seen her all day, and he's knocking on the door. And she says, hey, I'd put off my garments. You know, how could I put it back on? You know, I've 
taken my shoes off or I've cleaned my shoes, you know, or my feet. Sorry, not my shoes. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to get them dirty. And basically she says, you know, I'm not interested. You know, my beloved, she says, put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Now, let me explain this, because I think, uh, in my opinion, I may be wrong, this is a poor interpretation or, or translation of one of the words. The word is thrilled, and commentators differ on this, but most of them have landed here, unfortunately. But if you study the actual Hebrew word for the word thrilled, it's not thrilled. You look up the word, it means uh, tumultuous, it means turmoil, it means an, an external groan. And I think that's what is really going on here. It's, it's a better translation, I think, given the context and what we're going to see even later on, what she says about herself in that moment. So you can imagine this. He comes late. It's been a long day. She hasn't seen him all day. She's been with the kids. She's had housework. You know, you know you make, I'm praying a scenario. She probably didn't. She was a queen. But you know what I'm talking. Long day. She's ready for bed. She's settled in. And all of a sudden, he's knocking on the door and wants things to start up just like that. And she says, oh, man, I'm already in bed. I've taken my robe off. And I've cleaned my feet. You know, and her heart was tumultuous. She lets out a groan, in a sense. And it says, he sticks his hand in through the latch, where they would add one of those latches on there, and almost like he's going to pop the latch, but he doesn't. He touches it, and then he leaves, we're going to see. Okay? But here's what we're going to see in this little section, is a couple poor responses to... Uh, times of sexual tension and how they push our spouse away. So my poor response, when I respond poorly in times of sexual tension, I will push my spouse away. Two poor responses I want you to see in this passage. Okay, the first one starts off really with Solomon from the moment he gets home. Okay, and here's that first one, is not being sensitive to my spouse's needs. Solomon's had a long day. Maybe he's one of these people that a stressful day increases his desire for sex as it often does for a man. And a man comes home and finds that in his wife, he finds a retreat, a safe place that's different than the challenges and issues that he faces all during the week or during that particular day. And it's a place where he finds a comfort that only his wife can offer to him. And that was probably what was happening with Solomon. But he had no consideration for her day. He just had been gone all day long and just comes knocking on the door and starts sweet-talking her, and she's already getting ready to go down for the night. He's not being sensitive to her needs. Guys or, or girls, whoever the high-need spouse is, is don't set your spouse up to fail. Whenever it's possible, give them some time to prepare, especially if they're the slower-preparing spouse. It's just being sensitive to that. Solomon, here he is. He's the king of all Israel. He has anything he wants at his disposal. He could have easily called for a messenger in the middle of the day, thinking, you know what? I'm kind of interested in being close with my wife tonight. Rather than just waiting to the last minute, he could have sent that messenger home. He could have sent him with some flowers, with a note that he wrote, and said, hey, honey, I got a long day today. It's going to be a tough one. I can't wait to see you tonight. And I'm going to bring home our favorite ice cream to share when I get there. Now, I don't know if they had ice cream back then or not, but <laughs> you get what I'm getting. Let me ask you, wives, on a scale of 1 to 10, knocking on the door and saying, honey, I'm ready to go, 1 to 10, where are you at on that? 
Zero, right? A note in the middle of the day or a text, an email, a, a quick phone call, bringing something home. And I bet that bumps you to maybe do a three, three be three and a half. I mean, there's a shot at that point, guys, I'm saying. The first one, it's off the table. I'm just saying being sensitive to your, each of your needs. The other one would be he comes home late, he hasn't talked to her all day. Solomon could have just owned the fact that, you know what, it's too late. It's not going to happen tonight. I'm not even going to try because she's going to need some time to connect, and I don't have that. We don't have that. And just owned it, being sensitive. On the flip side, she could have, too, tried to be sensitive. This is, again, how we can poorly respond or positively. Maybe she knows her husband. Maybe she's had these conversations. She says, you know what? When my husband is stressed, one of the ways I can love him like no other person on this earth can is to connect with him sexually like this. I know he's got a long day today. I know this particular day is always a difficult day to him. I wonder what it would be like if I just surprised him when he got home. He gets home late. Normally he's sensitive to this. Normally he's, and, and I just take the time to be ready for him when he comes home. I'm just trying to give you some positive ways in which you can respond as opposed to how we often naturally respond. Okay? Second is responding to a, one of them is, is being insensitive. The second one is responding to a sexual advance inappropriately. Responding inappropriately. So he's insensitive. He comes in. She's inappropriate in a sense. She makes it sound like it's a tumultuous response. Oh my goodness, not again. We gotta have, we gotta do this stuff, the sex thing again. Oh my goodness, that's horrible. It's about the worst possible. I mean, come on, we've all been there. Whether it's a guy having to do something his wife wants him to do or a wife wanting to do something that his husband wants us to do, we do, we respond inappropriately. We respond in a hurtful manner rather than a helpful one. And it pushes us apart rather than drawing us together. Here's two keys that I want you to understand in how we respond inappropriately uh, to these times of tension. And they address both people. So understand, you need to own the one that most appropriately fits you. Here's one key. Feeling the need for sex does not demand that you get it. If you're that high need person or you're in the mood, feeling the need for it is not a right or does not demand that you get it. Any more than feeling the need to purchase something demands that you buy it. Right? We have no problem, guys, sometimes thinking, hey, our wives should be able to resist going out and birching some of those things, and, you know, even if they feel like it. But we don't have that same standard for ourselves when it comes to our sexual desires. Just because we feel that way, we're not animals like the rest of the wild kingdom. It's not an instinctual thing, and we just got to jump on the next thing that's moving and take care of our needs. Contrary to what society tries to tell us, that's not true. Biblically, we have a soul. We're different creations and creatures than the rest of the universe and the rest of creation. The other side of that is this. Not feeling the desire for sex does not excuse you from it. Okay? Having the desire for it does not guarantee you or give you the right for it, but not feeling the desire for it does not excuse you from it any more than not feeling like paying your mortgage this month excuses you from not paying it. Those are our mindsets we bring into a relationship. 
that will hurt or damage our relationship as opposed to helping us respond appropriately. 1 Corinthians 7, I, I brought this up last week because it was part of last week's message, but write this down, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. There's a couple of really important principles in this passage. It's not going to come up on your screen, so I'll just read it to you, uh, and you can look it up later on. It's several verses right before it. We talked about it last week, how in this passage, Paul gives us some principles on marriage. And one of the principles is that when you get married, wives, you give authority of your body over to your husband, and husbands, you give authority of your body over to your wives. In a loving way, you are there to serve and meet the needs of your spouse. Now, you're not to do it perfectly, but that's part of what you are there for. And in the midst of that principle, Paul says this, and so there's some really important things we need to get from this here. He says, do not deprive one another, in verse 5, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. He's talking about uh, the sexual relationship. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer uh, and, and ladies, you can't do like five-week prayer fast in the midst of this. You have to agree together. It's both of you agreeing that you're taking some time off for prayer. Okay, we're going to see a lot of praying wise in the coming weeks, right? That's not what I was saying. What, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, and then it says why? That you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, meaning come together in your sexual relationship again. And there's two things that he tells us. He tells us a reason or a cause and a reason or a purpose and a cause. He says, so that Satan may not tempt you. So one of the reasons you don't refrain from it for long periods of time is to avoid Satan tempting you. See, when you withhold that aspect in your relationship and you neglect it, you open your marriage up for temptation. And this isn't just for the high sex person, it's for both of you. When you neglect an area that's unique to the marriage, both of you will pursue it in different ways. Because usually a, a sexless marriage is one that's lacking emotional and spiritual intimacy as well. When all those things are missing, a wife or a, the emotional person will look for ways to meet those emotional needs outside the marriage. It may be through a friendship. It may be through an emotional affair at work. It may be through an emotional affair with romance novels or TV shows. You will inappropriately Go after and seek that need in a way that leaves your marriage vulnerable. And guys will go after it in other ways, whether it's through pornography or in appropriate physical relationships. And we leave ourselves vulnerable when we don't prioritize and take care of this area of our marriage. Okay, now, listen to this, and I hope you read this. Let me, hear, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if this is where you're at in your marriage, because every marriage gets to that point, you are excused then to read your romance novels or have your affair on the side or get engaged in pornography because your wife or your husband isn't meeting your needs. That's not what Paul says. Paul says when you do that, it will lead you or you'll experience greater temptation because those needs aren't being met. But he says at the end of that verse, Says, so that sa Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What he's saying is that when you neglect that, you will open yourself up to greater temptation. But then he goes on to say, the only reason you fall to that temptation is because of your lack of self-control. 
You see, God doesn't compromise on the standard. Whether you never get sex or you never have an emotional conversation with your husband or wife again, you never have an excuse to seek those needs being met outside of this relationship. Did you hear me on that? Okay. So I say this because, wives, you don't ever need to beat yourself up over sinful behavior that your husband engages in because you didn't meet his needs the way he wants. You're not responsible for his sinful behavior. However, you are responsible for obeying this command to being one who is available to meet this need in your husband's life. You will have to answer for that, but you won't have to answer for his inappropriate response. Husbands, it's the same for you. You're not responsible for your wife always getting wrapped up in emotional things with other friends or with her novels or her books or finding that, that need met in some other way. That's a guy, ladies, that's, that's female pornography. I'm just telling you. There is no guy ever like the characters in that book that want to hold your hand and spend time with you for years and years and years and never have sex. That guy doesn't exist. He just wants to cuddle you. He just wants to speak nicely to you. That, that guy doesn't exist any more than the woman in that pornographic magazine exists that says, all I want to do is have sex with you without a relationship. Both of those are the devil's way of dividing your relationship. Guys, you are not responsible for a wife whose behavior runs in that direction, but you are responsible for meeting the emotional needs of your wife and being available to love her in that way. You will be held accountable for that. Let's look, look to positive now. Those were some of the negative ways in which we can do it, but this passage gives us some thoughtful ones. So my thoughtful responses in times of sexual tension will draw my spouse, my spouse near, and we're going to see that as we go through this passage. My thoughtful responses in times of sexual tension will draw my spouse near. So let me, see the, let me show you the first one. It says, she arose, it said, to open to my beloved. So she finally gets up and goes to open the door. My hands dripped with myrrh, it said. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bowl. So when she thought he was just going to jam the door and come in, he reached in and said, and he put this myrrh on there, which is like a perfume. We've seen that earlier on. It's like a, a, a sensual, romantic type thing. He just rubs that on the door handle, and then he walked away. He didn't push harder. He didn't get angry. He just maybe retreated. He may have been a little hurt and responded, but when she gets up to go and let him in, she opens up the door and finds, oh, there's myrrh on there, and he's not there. He, in a sense, accepted the rejection at that point. Even though he was insensitive and coming, he accepted the rejection with a humble gentleness. A positive or thoughtful response can be to accept rejection with humble gentleness. What this would be like today is, say your, your wife does something that hurt you or your, or your husband did something that hurt you a little bit and you're sensitive, you could get upset or you could buy flowers and the next day leave them on the table or a box of chocolates with a little note and do something that moves toward your spouse rather than what we often do is retreat and attack. And that's in a sense what we see with Solomon here is that he had a humble response to what happened. Next thing. It says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me 
when he spoke. Here's why I think that word uh, earlier is not thrilled, but is, is groaned. Here she's admitting what happened when he came to the door. My soul failed me. I should have responded. I want to respond to my husband in an ideal situation. I think every husband and every wife wants to be responsive to their spouse. But her soul failed her at that moment. She groaned. She did, ah, instead of responding in a gentle way, as all of us have done. Here's the point. Own a hurtful response. Just own it. We all do it. It's going to happen over and over in your relationship. Don't justify it, just owning it. In fact, you'll notice that if you'll own a hurtful response, it'll actually deepen your relationship and draw you closer together than trying to justify it or use excuses for what just happened. She does that here, and you're going to see how eventually it's going to bring them around, in particular next week as we move on from this scene. So next one is we see what happened after that. So she said, I sought him but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me and as they went about the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. So this is part of the song. This is the poetry. If you remember before the watchmen helped her find it, now she's communicating a story that, hey, because of how I responded to him, now He's took off. He's left and I can't find him. My soul failed, she said within me. These watchmen, now they're beating me up. I think she's just communicating poetically. What often happens when we know we've hurt our spouse and we can't resolve it is we're, tr- we're troubled. And, and she's just feeling beat up inside because she goes, oh man, I hurt him. Any spouse that loves their spouse is going to feel that bit of brokenness when they know they've hurt him. And she's just saying, I, I'm, being beaten, I'm beating myself up over what they did. And so they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, she says, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So here you see she was, you know, groaning. She eventually gets up. She goes. When she finds out he's not there, and then he, in a sense, left flowers on the latch or the myrrh on the latch, her heart is softened, and, and she now desires to be with her husband. And now she can't find him. She realizes she's hurt him. And here's a, a principle for us that we see in here is pursue your spouse after a hurtful interaction. Our nature is to withdraw and retreat, but we see this couple pursues each other in particular the one here who initially or she hurt she knows she hurt her husband because of that response now she pursues him to talk to him about it now let's see what happens as they continue so you see this interaction as she's looking for him it says uh, what is your beloved this is the choir again what is your beloved more than another beloved meaning why are you going after this guy Almost beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And she says this, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. Now I'm going to go through these. You're going to hear both of them speak. I'm not going to describe or, or explain what each of these mean because I don't think that's the main point. I know they have interesting aspects to them, but what I want you to do is see how they respond in the midst of conflict. Okay, they're, they're separated right now. They haven't resolved this conflict, and you're seeing how she's speaking 
about her husband there. And you're going to see how he's going to speak about her. He says, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now later, we're going to skip a few verses. Uh, getting in this is poetry. It's not necessarily chronological, but to make my point, I want to go to how we hear him talk about her. He says, You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. One of the things I want us to see from this section here is when they're in the midst of conflict, there's two ways that we tend to respond to one another. We're either going to criticize our mate or we're going to speak complimentary of them. And what you do in that moment will play hugely into the quality of your marital relationship. You see, this couple does not criticize their spouse with others when they are in conflict. They avoided that. Even in the midst of this, she goes out and when they ask her, what are you looking for this guy for? She could have easily said, you know, he's such an insensitive og. I mean, I'm working all day, and I'm finally in bed, and he comes home late from work. I haven't heard from him all day, and then he wants to get intimate. She could have easily said that, but she doesn't. See, because that, by that time, she's recognized she's had something to own in it, and he's obviously come to that conclusion as well because of how he speaks of her. She says, oh, that insensitive woman. I work hard to provide that castle for her. I give her this beautiful bed. And I just come home and knock. It's three minutes. That's all I want, three minutes. And she can't even give me three minutes. I'm just trying to lighten it up a little bit, all right? But that's not how they speak about each other. Can I just warn you, couples? If you criticize your spouse when you're in the midst of a conflict, if you get out in public and you get together with your girls or you hang out with your guys and you're in the midst of some difficulties you're going through and you start chopping away at your spouse in public, you will absolutely destroy your relationship. And you will destroy every bit of trust you have with that person, that mate. Don't ever do that. I'm not saying you don't ever share your challenges or struggles outside of your marriage. I'm saying there's a proper way to do it and an improper way to do it. A proper way is to say, you know what? We're having some difficulties. And then rather than talking about their issues, you talk about yours. I haven't been very sensitive lately. I've been pretty angry. I've been kind of pushy. You know, I've been very unresponsive to my spouse. I've you know, haven't really been around to meet his needs. Whatever it is, you own your part, even if it's only 10% of it. But you do not speak about your spouse's issues in public. That stays between you and them until you've resolved them properly. You understand what I'm saying? 
That's one of the, the beautiful things we see in this passage of how they respond in a thoughtful way rather than an unthoughtful way. The last thing we see here is very important as well, and it's a theme we've seen over and over again. And here's what happens. It says, where has your beloved gone? Uh, you know, oh, a most beautiful among women, where is your beloved turned? What will you seek him with you? And she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. Remember, that's a phrase that was also used of Solomon's work. As a shepherd, it would, uh, the garden and the, and the grazing the gardens and the gathering of lilies described his work as a shepherd. So in a sense, what she's saying is, you know what, after I rejected him and he left, he went back to work. As guys often do in that moment, they retreat to their work, and, and, and wrongly as it is, look what she does. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. She affirms that even then he walked away, she affirms that we belong to each other, the covenant and our commitment is to each other, I'm his and he's mine. She affirms their relationship. Solomon goes on then to say of something very similar. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines. So by this point in his life, he'd acquired 60 queens. He had 80 concubines. Often those were given in political situations, and he disobeyed God's word in doing that. But here's what he's saying here. When I met you, Shulamite, this was the first relationship I started that was proper. He did it the way it should have been done. And he's saying, hey, I have 60 queens, I have 80 concubines, and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. See, at this point, he had realized his foolishness, and he says, you know what, I could have gone to any other one of these women that were available to me. I chose not to. Yeah, maybe I wasn't perfect. I took off, I left, I went to work, but I only wanted you, the only one of her mother, peer to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. They affirmed their exclusive commitment to each other in the midst of that difficulty. So even in their challenges, even in their conflict, even in the midst of that struggle, they could have run to other inappropriate things, but instead they choose to compliment and they choose to affirm their commitment to one another. You know, in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says these words to his church, that he's standing at the door and he's knocking. He says, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, then I will sit with him, I will eat with him, I will dine with him. That was a picture of deep intimacy in that time period. What Jesus is saying is that I'm the lover at the door knocking. And he's knocking at our doors, church. And he's saying, if anyone will let me in, I will enjoy intimate fellowship with you. You see, the difference, though, with Jesus than, than Solomon is when Solomon felt rejected, he took off and, and buried himself in his work. But Jesus says he doesn't do that. He just stands, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. And the scriptures say he knocks until you take your final breath. It is never too late until you go to the grave to welcome him in to experience that fellowship and intimacy that only he 
can give you. So church, as we talk about the most intimate, earthly relationship that we have, and how difficult it can be and how we can appropriately or inappropriately respond. I want to ask you this. Have you responded appropriately to the greatest and most true lover this world has ever known? Because if we don't take the time to invite Jesus in, if he's knocking at our door every day and we're busy with the kids or we're too busy at work or, or we got other things on our plate, we don't have time to let him in and enjoy the intimacy that he longs to have with you and with me. If we don't have time for that lover, how in the world are we ever going to respond to the broken lover that God has blessed us with in our marriage? What would it look like if this week you took some time to just sit with Jesus and talk to him about your relationship with him. Just be honest with him. Say, here's where I'm at. Talk about why you're not connecting the way you would want to connect. What is it in your life that's keeping you from having the intimacy that he is waiting and longing to have with you? For some of you, maybe you've never even taken that step. Maybe you've never come to the place of trusting him as your savior and, and you feel your sin keeps you away or your struggles keep you away and they don't. Your only thing that's keeping you away is you trusting him for doing what he said he would do. And he is waiting for you to open the door, imperfect and messed up as you are. He says, I'm just waiting. Just open it up. You know, for others of us, we're so busy with everything else in our lives that we just don't have time to talk to him. Have you talked to him about your relationship? Have you talked to him about your relationship with your spouse? If you said, these are my hurts, these are my fears, these are my struggles, and let him just minister to your heart. I mean, if anyone knows what it's like to love a person who's not worthy of love, it's him. Who best to talk to about our own relationships than him? church imagine imagine what this community could look like if dozens of marriages were launched out into it that had this perspective and relationships imagine what people might see if they saw something so different than what most of them are experiencing right now that's what Jesus longs for for you that's what he desires for our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you that these truths are so real. They're so practical. Lord, we don't even have to have trusted you to know that everything we saw today is so true about a marriage relationship. And Lord, you wrote these things thousands of years ago, 3,000 years there wasn't one marriage book out on the market yet, and yet nothing I've ever read in modern time comes close to the beauty, to the sensitivity, and the reality of what you shared here. Thank you that you love us so much that you shared it with us. Lord, help us 
Lord, help us to trust these principles, but more so to trust your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.